Welcome to Every Moment His, a podcast dedicated to how God's preached word affects every moment of our daily lives. This sermon was preached by Pastor John Rasmussen at Holy Cross Lutheran Church. We have one reading from Scripture tonight, and it is Matthew chapter 18. I encourage you to grab a Bible, open up to Matthew 18. That's on page 823 in the Pew Bibles. Uh, These Wednesday evenings, we're going to be focusing on the theme of reconciliation with others. Uh, You know, living in Christian community with others in the church is really an art. It's an art that you learn uh, through a lot of failures, a lot of forgiveness, a lot of patience. And uh, we're going to see that in chapter 18 of Matthew's gospel. Uh, Really, I would say that uh, Matthew 18 is about the art of living in Christian community. And so just to briefly, uh, before we read the text for tonight, briefly give you an overview. Tonight, uh, we begin chapter 18 with this question of who is the greatest in the kingdom of God? Uh, From there, next week, we take a look at temptations to sin and how uh, sin uh, disrupts and ruins Christian community. Then we'll move to the parable of the lost sheep. What do we do in Christian community when somebody's missing? Uh, From then on, we go to uh, this question of what do you do if your brother or sister in Christ sins against you? What's the process you should take to be reconciled? And then finally, uh, Jesus has a parable about Uh, those who receive forgiveness and yet withhold forgiveness. And so uh, that'll be our plan for these Wednesdays in Lent. And uh, if you have your reconciled booklet, you can open up to page 14 where we'll be taking notes. So let's look at the text for tonight. It's Matthew 18, verses 1 through 6. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child... He put him in the midst of them and said, Truly, I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin... It would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and be drowned in the depths of the sea. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So the disciples have a question. Our our chapter here on reconciliation and Christian community begins with a question. The disciples come to Jesus and they say, okay, Jesus, so who's number one? Who is the greatest? Now, a good question to ask when somebody asks you a question is sometimes to ask, why do you want to know? Or tell me more about that, right? And so I kind of want to know, okay, disciples, uh, what motivated this question? Uh, Why did you think this was a good question to ask? And um, maybe the context helps us a little bit here. Uh, It's always good to read scripture in context. If you look at chapter 16 and chapter 17, Jesus is repeating to his disciples a very uncomfortable message. He's telling them that he is going to be put to death. We're going to Jerusalem, and I'm going to be arrested and mistreated and spit upon and, and beaten, and I will be put to death and raised on the third day. 
And so some people think that maybe this question of who is the greatest was motivated by the fact that, well, if Jesus dies, who's going to be his successor? They didn't catch, you know, the whole raised from the dead thing, right? They didn't believe it till it happened. And so um, maybe that's what's going on here. They're wondering who's going to be the natural successor, who's going to be the next rabbi, right? Um, as I look at the context, I kind of wonder, this might be stretching it, but it's worth thinking about, is, you know, uh, in chapter 17, we just went through that text a week and a half ago on the Mount of Transfiguration, right? Remember at the Eunice Center, that was our text, right? And so on the Mount of Transfiguration, how many of the disciples went up that mountain? Three, right? Peter, James, John. You almost kind of wonder if they thought they were pretty hot stuff for getting to go up there with Jesus, and maybe they're beginning to wonder, hey, maybe we're number one, right? We don't know. Uh, you know, we could spend plenty of time thinking about this. What motivated the disciples to ask this question? But either way, I think that we can acknowledge that this is a question that people almost always ask when they're in community. In either knowing it or not knowing it, it this is human nature. Uh, we want to know who's number one. We want to know who calls the shots. We want to know who has the power. We want to know who's praiseworthy. We want to know who the people are who are number one. So I would say that all people in some way or another are asking this question when they're in community. It's this thing we do with our old sinful nature. And I would say that we do that in straightforward ways and subtle ways. So some people might be kind of bold and assertive kinds of people, the kind of people who are always talking and not really good at listening, and maybe they're always trying to be seen and noticed. Maybe they're just competitive by nature, right? And, and so maybe it's very obvious that they're asking the question, who's the greatest? Is it me, right? But this is something that can be a temptation for shy, quiet, reserved kinds of people, the kinds of people who like to kind of be in the shadows in the background, and so maybe they won't make themselves the center of attention, but they expect to be the center of attention. And when they're not, uh, they will behave in unhealthy ways. They'll feel hurt. Now, this kind of question, who is the greatest, is a real threat to genuine Christian community. In fact, I would say that countless Christian communities have been torn apart because someone or some group of people are trying to assert their own importance. In fact, this is the real temptation of leadership. In fact, this kind of stuff happens in the church all the time. Um, it wasn't just a thing the disciples of Jesus, the apostles, wrestled with. Now, this is usually not outright, you know, who's number one. It comes out in more hidden ways. It's when we or a group of people in the church want our agenda or we have, want our way of doing things to win, and so something that maybe looks really orthodox or something that looks really like good and right, some cause in the church, can really just be kind of a mask for it's all about me. It's, it's all about being number one, being seen and noticed. I think this kind of stuff was going on in Christian community because we see some of the, the letters, the epistles of the New Testament talking about it, describing it. So, for example... Uh, maybe make a note to read James 3, 13 through 16. I'm going to read it for you, but it's good to go back to it and look at it. So James chapter 3, he's just talked about how, you know, like not many people should be 
teachers in the church because being a teacher uh, or a preacher is, um, is actually those of us who teach and preach will be judged more strictly uh, is what Ed James says. We'll be held accountable for more because we have more of a, a likelihood of, of you could lead people astray or you could lead people towards the truth. And then he's talking about taming the tongue, right? About making sure that we have wise speech that doesn't hurt or, or tear other people down. And this is what he says. He says in James 3, 13 through 16, who is wise and understanding among you? So who knows what they're talking about? He says this, by his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. So James is giving a, an example of what it looks like when this question, who's the greatest, gets into the mix of Christian community. It, it divides and it, and it causes people uh, to hurt one another. So that's the question, who's the greatest? Now, the answer is surprising. Look with me at verse 2. And calling to him a child, he put him in the middle of them and said, truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Now, what's surprising here is that Jesus appoints someone as the greatest that the disciples wouldn't have ever nominated, right? I kind of have this image in my mind of the disciples listening to Jesus, arms crossed, very serious. They want to find out who's the greatest. And there's just some random neighborhood village kids playing around. And maybe the disciples are kind of annoyed by them. And Jesus goes over and welcomes one of those kids and sets that kid right in the middle and says, here it is, guys. Here's the most important. So isn't that amazing that, that Jesus just totally flips upside down the normal expectations for who is great? He says, actually, guys, the people that you don't think are even worth noticing are the greatest. We have to remember that in the first century, kids were not held in such high esteem as they are now. Like people, I mean, kids were definitely to be seen and not heard in the first century. And so this is a very surprising, perhaps even offensive thing that Jesus is doing. And it would have really shook these disciples to the core. Like, what? You gotta be kidding me, Jesus. And yet Jesus tells them that they actually have to turn to repent, to change, to be converted, to become like children. So, so get the force of this. Jesus is saying, if you guys want to be a part of my kingdom, you have to become like one of these children that you didn't even think was worth noticing. Wow. Now, this is a, a rebuke to the disciples. It's a, it's a shot to their pride. Their question, who is the greatest, reveals an anti-kingdom of God attitude which at the very worst would mean that you're outside of God's kingdom and still need to enter, or at the very least would say you're acting and thinking inconsistently with the way we do things around here in God's kingdom. 
Now, why are children held up by Jesus as model disciples? Now, not everything about being a child applies here. Jesus isn't saying that to be a disciple, you should fall on the ground and have a tantrum, right? Or that you should not listen to your parents or not eat all your dinner or things like that that kids do sometimes. Um, Adults do these things too sometimes. But um, what Jesus is getting at, I think, first and foremost, is that children are dependent. They are trust experts because their whole entire life depends on trust. Everything that they have comes from trusting those in authority. But more to the point of the story, I think that Jesus is saying that children do not have any status in society. They don't have any power. They can't claim status on the basis of age, ability, or experience, and so they're completely dependent. So how does this all relate to Christian community? A couple things. For one, I think it's worth noting that pride and arrogance, whether in open ways or hidden ways, pride and arrogance always divides Christian community. But humility always heals and strengthens Christian community. Any attitude of, I'm a big deal, is going to create divisions and hurt. Any attitude that just insists on, I want to have my own way, is going to create divisions and hurt. The greatest in God's kingdom are not those who are confident in themselves, but those who are confident in Jesus, and thus they are humble. Another thing to mention is that humility, Jesus is holding up humility as the chief virtue in the Christian faith. Humility means that we use power in the right way. Jesus isn't just getting rid of like social status and people having positions of authority and things like that. No, he's saying that humility means that we use power in the right way. We use influence in the right way to cherish one another and build one another up rather than using our power to uh, really for our own purposes and our own glory, to advance our own cause. Now let's take a look at verses 5 and 6. And as we take a look at verses 5 and 6, I want you to note the word receiving, receive, which builds up Christian community, and the word cause to sin against, which scatters and fractures Christian community. So Jesus says in verse 5, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. That's the thing that builds up Christian community. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Wow. So what is Jesus saying here? Well, let's focus first on receiving. As Jesus says, the one who receives such a child in my name receives me. Receiving one another means that in our Christian community, we don't see each other according to normal human standards, the normal standards that either cause us to value one another or devalue one another. So, for example, when you were in high school, if high school functioned for you like it did for me, likely you would probably go and sit with people at lunch who played the same sports that you do or were in band with you. But in high school, it's like a lot of times we just kind of separate out, right? 
into these, it's kind of like a caste system sometimes, right, in high school. And it takes a lot of courage sometimes to like cross over and talk to people who may not be in the same group that you are. And adults do this too, right? Sometimes churches can become clicky, right? We can be in these little cliques and circles of these are just the people that I talk to. Receiving one such child in my name means that we see each person in the church for who they really are, a beloved, cherished child of God, a brother or sister in Christ, one who is worth my attention, worth listening to, worth seeing, rather than just seeing through. The way that we treat the least member of the body of Christ is really the way that we treat Jesus, either receiving him or ignoring him. I had somebody in college once tell me, um, man, this struck me to the heart. The person that you love the least is how much you love Jesus. I was like, ouch. Lord, have mercy, help me. Uh, but I think this is what Jesus is getting at here, is that, that, that the, the person, that, that how you treat the person that the world calls the least is, is really how you're treating Jesus. Because Jesus identifies with the least. So a good question to ask is, who am I talking to at Holy Cross? Who am I listening to? Who am I getting to know? Is it just the people who I've known and talked to and gone to lunch with for 30 years? Just the people who sit next to me? Or am I taking time to receive others, to listen to others, and to treat others as important? Now, this is a, we do this in small ways, right? Because it's, this is a daunting task as a large church, right? There's always going to be people at Holy Cross likely that we don't know. Um, I feel this sometimes on Sunday when I have two minutes left before church starts and I need to get from that door to the bathroom and then in here. And I have to pass about 50 to 60 people. And one of the things I kind of feel is like, I really would like to talk to all of you. I'd like to let you know that I care about you, but I have to get from here to here to there. Do you feel that? Right. And, and so um, it can be a little bit of a daunting task, right, to, to have community with people. But what we're saying here is we want to expand our bounds and say, when I show up to Holy Cross, how can I really see people and encourage them and love them and not just be about hanging out with my people? Now, in contrast to receiving is causing to sin. And you see that in verse 6. But I want to point out, this is why it's good for you to have your Bible open. Because if you have your Bible open and it's the same version that I have, and it is if you're using the one in the pew, the ESV, notice there's a text note. It's always good to read your text notes. Do you see the little number 8 right next to the word sin? Go down to the bottom. What does it say? Yeah, it says Greek, cause to stumble. And so cause to sin is an okay translation, but the reason you have a footnote is because there, this word doesn't exactly mean that in every instance. And so uh, the word in Greek is skandalizomai, and skandalizomai, it's where we get the English word scandal or to scandalize. And really, it literally means that you trip over something, that you cause somebody to trip over something. Like you put a stumbling block in front of somebody's 
way and they trip over it. And so you could interpret this, this word as to give offense to somebody, to offend somebody. Or you could interpret as to cause somebody to fall away, like to abandon the Christian faith, right? Or to, to break off from a community. Now, um, somebody stumbling or somebody falling away or being offended isn't always necessarily your fault. And I say that because Jesus, this word is used in the New Testament often in, in terms of Jesus. Jesus caused many to stumble and trip. And so Jesus uh, preaches the word and he does what he does as Jesus. And some people tripped over Jesus. They tripped over his words. They just couldn't handle the truth of what he was saying. They couldn't handle both the word of law that he preached that convicted people of sin and called them to repentance. And some people couldn't handle the fact that he freely forgave sins and they tripped over that, right? And so sometimes people stumble or they fall away and it's no fault of the Christian community. It's because we've been honest or because we've preached the truth. Always with gentleness and respect, right? But sometimes people just, nope, didn't sign up for that. But in a negative way, in this case, Jesus is talking about those whose words and actions needlessly offend others or needlessly create a barrier to faith in Christ. He's talking about those who in their quest for greatness end up trampling on these little ones. Ignoring them, not seeing them, or only seeing them insofar as they help them in achieving greatness. So do you see the difference? Now notice how severe the warning is here. Um, anybody know like a millstone? Wow, it's big. This is like a concrete slab of a thing. And Jesus is saying it'd be better to have one of those wrapped around your neck and drowned in the depths of the ocean than to cause one of these little ones to fall away. Right. Now, why is Jesus speaking this way? Doesn't it sound kind of mean? Hold up, Jesus. Well, have you ever seen like a video of what grizzly bears do and you get too close to their cubs? This is where we get mama bear, right? That phrase. Like, I think this is Jesus giving a stern warning to those who have power and, and influence. Be careful how you treat those who are the little ones because my love for them is fierce. And you mess with them, you mess with me, right? Is what Jesus is saying. So what are ways that we could maybe cause somebody to stumble in our community? You know, I want you to think of that person, perhaps, that you don't like at Holy Cross. Or maybe that person at Holy Cross who doesn't like you. Or maybe that person that you've offended or who has offended you or that person or those people with whom you experience distance or whom you feel distance with. And what I want you to see is that this is no small matter because when we cause one to stumble, we are doing so to Christ who fiercely loves the members of his own body. And so I want you to think about somebody in this community or maybe some other Christian that you know who has hurt you or offended you or mistreated you, and genuinely so, not just in your perception. 
could be that that person has placed a millstone around their neck, right? And isn't it incredibly important for you to do the merciful thing, and that would be to go and seek to be reconciled with that person, because by going and seeking to be reconciled to that person, the Lord is using you to remove the millstone from the neck, right? Or what about that person that you have sinned against, genuinely sinned against, the person that you have slighted, ignored, mistreated, slandered, and by doing so, perhaps you have placed the millstone around your neck? Won't you go to that person that you've hurt and seek healing and reconciliation? Won't you go to them and admit your fault and ask for forgiveness so that that heavy weight would be removed? You see, if you have somebody in this church that causes you to feel resentment or hurt or somebody that, that you just avoid or that you, you have a duty to go and talk to that person and to do your best to work it out. Now, of course, you could go to that person and say, hey, I want things to be made right between us. How can we make that happen? Like, where have I hurt you? That person could say, nope, no thanks. Of course, then that's not on you. You've tried, right? but it's important that we would do this. In fact, I would say that for us in Christian community, reconciliation with other Christians is not optional. Often hurt and distance are due simply to misunderstandings, but sometimes we have been genuinely sinned against or we have genuinely sinned against someone or likely both at the same time, and we have a calling motivated by the love of Christ to go and seek that person out. I'll just give you a quick story of how I experienced this once. So in my former congregation, uh, I'd been there a couple years, and we had a Sunday school meeting uh, talking about Sunday school and some changes we were going to be making to to Sunday school. And uh, one of the changes that we were making is we were implementing uh, uh, background checks for all those who work with children. We just said, this is just a good idea. We, we need to make sure that anybody working with children has had a background check. Um, and so um, what I didn't know is, well, number one, um, announcing that really collided with one of our volunteers and a really difficult experience that they had in the past. And it just really rub them the wrong way. And uh, to add to that, apparently that day I was really just was tired, and visibly so, and my tiredness was perceived as maybe just um, having a bad attitude. And, um, and so anyways, um, what happened was this person was, was really upset with me, and, and I didn't know it. <coughs> And that upset uh, feeling with me began to brew and stir and ferment, right? It just kind of uh, went on for a while. And uh, to the point where this person talked to somebody else about it and said, I'm just really mad at Pastor John. I'm really upset with him. Um, And, you know, we've all done this, right? When you've gotten upset with somebody and maybe it was just perception or maybe it was reality, but, but we've been hurt Maybe something they said that they didn't mean in, a, in the way we thought it did just really hit us where we're insecure. And then we just start circling around in our mind and thinking about it. And isn't it true that you create this version of that person in your mind that's just not entirely true? Like, 
Like, we, we create an enemy in our mind. It's kind of a self-protective way, you know, of just protecting ourselves, I think, um, from being hurt. And so then, um, this person that, that, that uh, so this other person with whom the other person shared the hurt with, uh, she was really trained in, in reconciling people. She'd gone through some formal training on how to reconcile Christians. Praise God for that. Because um, it could have just stayed there and gotten really ugly. Um, so anyways, there was a meeting arranged and, and uh, said, hey, uh, so-and-so is upset with you. Can we just come and talk it out? And I said, yeah, sure. Let's talk it out. And it takes a lot of self-control and a lot of... It's, it, it's hard to patiently listen to somebody and to hear how, how your actions hurt them and to not be defensive, right? And say, yeah, but... right. Um, but after about maybe 20 minutes of conversation, um, like, there was forgiveness. And so I was able to forgive, uh, I was able to ask for forgiveness for just, you know, not being my best self that day, right? Um, and, and she forgave me. And then I, she, she was able to say, I'm sorry for assuming the worst and blowing the situation up and not talking to you. And I was able to forgive, right? And what was really cool is that I ended up having a really close relationship with both of these people. And it was because of reconciliation, right? And, and so this is the whole reason that we're, we're preaching this sermon series is because the more of those kind of moments that we have as a church. Now, granted, they don't always go well, and sometimes it's a process. It takes multiple times of talking. The more moments we have like that as a church, the healthier we're going to be, the more spirit-filled we're going to be, right? The more we're going to be able to do God's work. And, and I'm in this with you, friends, like as your pastor. I mean, because the truth is that maybe you harbor resentment against me um, and I say this because, you know, being a pastor is really a strange social position to be in. Um, there's a lot of expectations for pastors. Some of them are fair. Some of them maybe not. Um, people often get upset with their pastors. Uh, sometimes that can be because your pastor is being faithful to God's word and telling you something you don't want to hear. Um, sometimes it's because you may have superhuman expectations of your pastor that are not realistic or fair. That happens sometimes. But sometimes, you know, the truth is, is that your pastors, your leaders in your church are frail human beings. We're sinners who make wrong decisions at times. Or maybe we forget to follow through on what we said we'd do. Or maybe sometimes we act out of anxiety rather than faith. And so I say this on my behalf, and I think any leader in our church would agree with me, that, that if I've hurt you or you've been you know, upset with me for any reason, if you find yourself stewing about something I've said or done, um, I would just really encourage you to come talk to me, and I'd be all ears. Um, I would welcome that, um, and I promise you I'd listen to you because I believe that reconciliation is important. In fact, some of the greatest growth I've had in my life is by people coming and talking to me and saying, hey, uh, I don't know if you know, but this was hurtful. And I tell you what, when people do this, we grow. Fruit is born, 
When we don't do this, things fester, nobody grows, and our community remains immature. So, in conclusion, I want to go back to the original question. So, after all, who is the greatest at Holy Cross? Who is it? Everybody's saying Jesus, because that's, that's, yeah, that's true. <laughs> that's why we're here, right? It is Jesus. But who's the greatest among us at Holy Cross? I want to give you two answers to that question, because I think it helps us understand the path forward. The number one answer to that question, who's the greatest at Holy Cross? You are. That might sound counterintuitive, but I think it's true. You are. And I say that because if you can imagine Jesus washing the disciples' feet, remember that, John 13, Jesus washes the disciples' feet. As Jesus came to each of those disciples, washed those stinky feet and locked eyes with each disciple, in that moment, that disciple is the most important. And so we can look at Jesus and everything that he's done for us, his life, his death, his resurrection, that we've been baptized into and received by faith. We can look at everything Jesus has done and we can say, that was for me. For God so loved me. He loved me and he gave himself for me. And you might think that maybe that's going to give you a big head, but it actually does the exact opposite. It humbles you. Because like all of us have this real deep desire like, where we want to know, am I worth it? Am I important? Do I matter? And a lot of our sin in life actually comes from us trying to answer that question in the wrong ways. We're trying to, like, who's the greatest? Maybe it's me. Maybe it's not. I don't know. And we act in all kinds of crazy, sinful ways because we're trying to scratch that itch, right? But here's the thing. When Jesus answers that question for us through giving his life for us, it actually frees us so that we don't really have to care anymore because we know we're worth it. We know we were worth the life of the Son of God. And it has this beautiful way of freeing us so that uh, we can look at every other person and say, who is the most important person at Holy Cross? Everybody else. Jesus allows us to just get out of our own head and, and stop worrying about ourselves so much and start thinking about other people. And so who is the, the greatest person? At Holy Cross, it's the person you don't notice. It's the person you avoid. It's the person who offers you no social advantage by talking to them. It's the person the world doesn't see or notice. It's the least in the world's eyes. That is the person who's the greatest. And Jesus Christ has set you free to be able to be concerned with the least among us, prizing them as the greatest. In fact, I would say that the person who is the greatest in this congregation is the person with the greatest need and the greatest weakness. And it may even be the person that God's calling you to reconcile with. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, thank you for loving us and loving us each individually. And though, Lord, we are the least, you lift us up and make us the greatest through your life, death, and resurrection. And so now, Lord, we are free to, to look at others and prize them as the greatest in our eyes, even if the world calls them the least. 
Pour out your spirit upon us, Jesus. Give us humility. And wherever we need to be reconciled, give us the strength we need. For this is your heart for us, Savior. Amen. Thank you.